to Second Kings chapter four. Second Kings chapter four. Well, uh, it gets bad whenever you've got uh, bifocals that you use for driving, but you can't read with, and then uh, and then you got your readers that you. Uh, leave it home. I, I brought them this morning, and uh, so forgive me if we sort of stutter through some of these verses here this evening. Let's begin verse number 8, and we'll be going... Just about through this chapter, a good part of it anyway. And it fell on the day that Elisha passed to Shuman, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. I said this morning that of all of the words that are misused, the word great must surely be at near the top of the list. Uh, we often use that word when it's not appropriate, but God never does. When He says a person is great, they are great. There's no doubt about it. They might not be popular, but they're great. They might not be rich, but they're great. They might not be highly educated, but they're great. And the Lord says here of this woman that she is a great woman. And when we look at the story, it teaches us some very important lessons. And in the first place, as you'll see in just a little bit, we learn that sometimes good people have bad problems. You know, that comes as a surprise to a lot of people because we think if we strive to do our best to live up to God's standard that maybe we ought to get a pass on difficulties in life. We, you know, we deserve a break. We deserve better than this. And we, you know, generally don't just come out and say that, but a lot of times we feel that in our heart. And then when things go awry, we, uh, we develop a spirit of resentment. We wouldn't come out and say that the resentment is toward God, but we know that God either causes or allows everything. And so in reality, that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're complaining about uh, the situation. We learn that. But we also learn from this some of the things that constitutes what, what true greatness is. And that's what we're going to really focus on here tonight. Not so much the nature of her problem and not so much even the miracle uh, that God wrought, but rather the, uh, the, the characteristics of greatness. Let's go ahead and read on down through verse number 16 and we see the first, the first characteristic. Verse number 9 and she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. 
Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in thither. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Jehazi, his servant, Call this Shumanite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said, and, she, and he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all of this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken of to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. And he said, What then, what then is to be done for her? And Jehazi answered, Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door, and he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. The first thing that jumps out at me in regards to the greatness of this woman is her concern for God's work. And no person is great unless they have a concern for for what concerns God. She cares about God's work and God's man. And notice she takes the initiative to suggest to her husband, why don't we uh, why don't we construct this little extra room here on the house and we'll furnish it to meet the, the needs of God's prophet. Over, over the years and having been in so many different homes during revival meetings and what have you, I can tell you that there was a time that, uh, that preachers spent a lot more time in the homes of people. And Bev could tell you that years ago, if we had a, if we had a missionary, he stayed in, uh, he stayed in the home. If we had a guest preacher for a revival meeting, he stayed in the home and, uh, she cooked his meals, washed his clothes, did well, you know, whatever needed to be done. The kids would all get in a, you know, scooch up somewhere else to, to make room for him. That, that was just the way. You didn't put them in a holiday inn. And, and uh, back during those days, it was a common thing. Most Sunday afternoons, uh, after the service was over, at least a good number of them, we'd go to somebody's house. And, and there was this interaction between the the preacher and his family and the families in the church that is totally absent in our society today. And I realize things have changed. Things are different. I understand that. But there ought to be a concern for the work of God. And this woman here, recognizing Elisha as a prophet of God, says, in essence, let's make life as easy as we can for him. Let's just build this little room Churches have had what they call their prophet quarters. You know, they'd build a little room for uh, for the preacher. And uh, back many years ago, especially in country churches, that was really a great thing, a great blessing. And uh, thank God for people that care enough, you know, to provide something like that. And so uh, this project, building a room, takes time, it takes labor, it takes money. In other words, it's costly. It's, you know, not like let's run down to Kroger and make sure we got him some fried chicken whenever 
whenever he gets here, it's more than that. This is quite an extensive project, and she's willing to get involved in order to make life better for the preacher. And she could have talked about it forever, but the words will never get the job done. We have to put, you know, feet to our prayers and pitch in and help. And so she makes this suggestion to her husband. And to me, the thing that really jumps out about this is that here's a woman wanting to serve God in some way, although she didn't have what she wanted most, which was a child. I think that speaks volumes about her character, you know. Here, here's a woman that no doubt had prayed she wanted a child, but she was barren, and, and yet... And yet she was willing to invest her time and labor and what have you into providing a place for the prophet of God. You know, a lot of times when we don't get what we want out of life, we, uh, we, do, we, well, we develop an attitude of resentment about it and rebellion toward the things that we could be doing. She could have said, look, you know, I love the Lord. I've served the Lord. I've done the best that I can. And the least he could do is give me a child where I could be like other women. I, you know, I want a child. She could got so hung up on that, what she wanted that she would have never, she would have never recognized the needs of anybody else, including this preacher. It would have been, uh, who cares about him? I want a kid, you know. And sometimes we get that way. We get so hung up on what we want, what we need, and so forth, that we neglect the needs of others. So she was concerned about God's work. Now let's pick it up in verse number 17. And here's the second thing, and that's the fact that she was conscious of her duties as a mother. Verse 17, And the woman conceived... And bear a son at the season that Elisha had said unto her according to the time of life. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said unto his father, My head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. Boy, that's a powerful statement right there. Carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. Wait a minute. He's grown. The child was grown. If I get the picture right, it's probably a teenager at this point. Twelve years old, maybe. He's sick. They take him to his mother. He sat on her knees till noon and then died. Boy, well, nobody takes the place of a mother, do they? And she's conscious of her duties concerning her child. She was there. You know, the father said, take him to his mother. It would have been horrible if, if the report would have come back. We don't know where she's at. She's gone. She was there when she was needed. She wanted a child. God gave her a child. And now she recognizes her responsibility to that child. And she's there for the child whenever he is in need. 
I think it's a shame that a lot of modern-day mothers don't have that same kind of concern. Some of them are more concerned about their career than they are about their children. And yet the Bible teaches that a mother's main responsibility is in the home. Now, don't have a heart attack or anything because I realize that there are mothers who are forced to work outside the home. I understand that. In order to support their family, they have to do that. And I I can sympathize with women that are in that situation. But that's not God's ideal. Something terrible happened in our country several years ago when all of a sudden we got it in our minds that there's no way that we can function as a society unless mom and dad both are working. The kids become known as latchkey children. Mom's not there. Dad's not there. Nobody's there. Let me tell you, there's nobody that can take the place of mother. And any woman that would intentionally neglect her parental responsibility is certainly not great in God's sight. That is a horrible thing to neglect your parental responsibility because you're concerned about your career or you're so concerned about gaining luxuries in life that you feel like that is a license to just neglect your duties toward your children. Now, you know, I know we can say, well, boy, I, I provide the best babysitter for that. Look, the babysitter can't take your place. Whatever sacrifice you need to make, if you all you've got's one little black and white TV in the home and that's all you've got, if you have to drive a car that's 10 years old, whatever sacrifices that you have to make, if there is any way, Mom, that you can keep from working and being away from your children, I urge you to do that. That's not very popular today, is it? Pretty quiet in here. It's not very popular, and I understand it, but I'm telling you, that is God's place for the woman is to be there in the home and the keeper at the home. No wonder God says here was a great woman. Now look at verse 21 verse 22. Here's the third thing that I believe contributed to her greatness, and that is she was considerate of her husband's authority. Verse 21, And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God and come again. Now, she could have just done what she wanted to do. She could have said, I'm out here. This boy this boy has died, and there's nobody in this world that can help him except God. I'm going to get him to the man of God regardless of what it takes. And she could have just taken off. Instead of doing that, she is considered of the husband's authority and goes through the proper channels and makes the request made known unto him. It's a horrible thing when any of us have a spirit of rebellion, man, woman, boy, or girl. Spirit of rebellion is a horrible thing in God's sight. And it's certainly horrible whenever it comes to, to the wife resenting the husband's authority. You know, there's so many times there have been situations where maybe the mother is so uh, 
perturbed that her children do not respect her. You know, they're outspoken and disrespectful of her. And in many instances that I've observed over the years, the real contributing factor to that is that she treats the husband the same way. And believe me, those those kids, you know, they pick up on that. You know, if mom can have that attitude toward dad, I can have that attitude toward mom. She's just reaping what she sowed. She gets all bent out of shape, you know, because the kids don't fall in line, but yet at the same time, she's resentful of the husband's authority. Some way or another, we got it in our mind that for a woman to be under the authority of her husband, that we are indicating that she is either less intelligent or less important than he is, and, and that's not, that's not the case. She might be, you know, much brighter than he is might be that you know she is better educated more knowledgeable she might be that she has far more wisdom than him it's simply the order of authority that god has established and for for the home to 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 operate in an orderly fashion somebody's got to be in charge By the way, that doesn't mean that because the man is the head of the house, it doesn't mean that he becomes a dictator holding her under his thumb and dictating everything she does. A man would be plumb foolish not to give some consideration to his wife and to ask her opinions in regards to certain issues, but in the final analysis, somebody's got to be in charge and have the authority. And from the very beginning of time, God has had a line of authority. And it all starts in the home. We wonder why why today we have so many people that disrespect authority our prisons are full of people that have no respect for authority whatsoever where did they learn that or where did they fail to learn and it goes right back to the home they didn't learn it there and after a while it shows up you know in the workplace and in everyday life and and it creates a a disorder in every area of our society. So she was considerate of her husband's authority. Instead of taking the bull by the horns and saying, look, this is the need. I know what's needed and I'm I'm going to take care of this. She went to the husband. Now notice verse 23. Here's the fourth thing that contributed to her greatness and that is the fact that she was cautious not to be deterred in what needed to be done. Verse number 23, and he said, wherefore, wherefore wilt thou go with him today? Boy, this guy's a real dummy. It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, it shall be well. Then she saddled the ass and said to her servant, drive and go forward, slack not thou Thy writing for me, except I bid thee. And she went and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel, and it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, he said to Jehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shumanite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. 
Really? She was respectful to her husband, but notice here, she's determined. And let me tell you, sometimes women have to be that way. Her husband sure didn't offer much encouragement. I mean, his son is dead. And she wants to do something about it. And she says, I'm going to go to the man of God. And it's like with him, why? Why are you going there? It's not, a, you know, it's not a holy day or anything like that. It's not time to go to church. So why, why are you looking for the man of God? And I think in his mind, you know, he, he's thinking it's, it's useless. There's no sense in going to the preacher. The boy's dead. Let's bury him and get back to work. To make matters worse, she didn't receive any encouragement from Jehesai, who's his assistant there in verse number 27. He didn't encourage her, but yet that didn't stop her. I think it's a, I think it's a mark of greatness when we have a spirit of determination, uh, even when circumstances are unfavorable. It's real easy just to give up. She could have just, she could have just said, look, boy, this is horrible and terrible. The worst day of my life, this son that I desired so much, God gave him to me. God has taken him away from me. I'll have to live the rest of my life without this boy. I just don't know how I'm going to make it. It's more than I can bear. She could have done that. A lot of people do. I was preaching in a little place called Walnut Grove, Missouri, many years ago. While I was there, I was—I uh, had—I uh, had, uh, I had uh, a, a meal in the home of a particular family there, and their son had had been killed in Vietnam, and they had built a almost looked like a shrine in one room for him all of his stuff there all of his awards and it so happened he was a bass singer in a quartet and as soon as he got back he was to be the guy to take J.D. Sumpner's place in the Blackwood Brothers Quartet and he got killed and they couldn't understand that, and they it, it had eaten them up. Now, folks, look, you know, thank God uh, Bev and I have never, never lost a child, and I can't imagine how difficult it would be to go through that. But at some point in time, you have to determine that you're going to move on, and they were stuck. Right, that's all they could think about, all they could talk about. And sometimes we get to that place that because of the difficulties of life, the unfavorable circumstances, you know, we, we, we just want to give up. And it doesn't get any more unfavorable than dead. This kid's dead. And she's not giving up. Notice verse number 24. Here's something else that is notable to me, I think. And she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. She is content to be uncomfortable. 
That tells me that she is more concerned about others than she, you know, is her own personal comfort. More concerned about her child than she was herself. And I don't think many people can honestly say that. Because most people are more concerned about their desires than they are about the needs of other people. But let me tell you, I, uh, you know, people talk about enjoying horseback riding. Well, I kind of know what you mean. It's kind of fun to sit up there for a little while and, you know, ride ride around. And uh, let me tell you, it's it's not a whole lot of fun, at least for me, whenever it's spend prolonged periods in the saddle riding. And it's certainly not fun when you're going over rough terrain and what have you. But here is a woman. Did I read right? She saddled an ass. She did it. She throwed the saddle on the ass and told the, you know, told the the young servant, don't slack up. Let's keep going. I mean, don't worry about me. I'm willing to be uncomfortable as long as we get this boy to the man of God or the man of God to the boy. As long as we can in some way get his need met, I don't care about my uncomfort. Boy, Nobody on earth can identify with that like mothers. Their willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of their children. I don't think there's any anyone on earth can compare with them and their loving care of their children. Willingness to subject themselves not only to that nine-month period of carrying that child, but then bringing the child into the world in great pain and then caring for that child. And remember, that kid, that child, has never done anything but make her miserable. That's all. She's miserable. And then he's born, and so she gets up in the middle of the night and takes care of him, and he still made no contribution at all. But yet she loves him and is willing to be made uncomfortable because of him. That's what greatness is. A willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of ministering to others. Verse 26. Another mark of greatness is this. And the fact that she was confident in God's ability. Notice he said, Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? Now, how would you have answered that? You know, she, some, some folks would have said, No, it's not. Well, my kid is dead. I'm broken hearted. My stupid husband doesn't even see the need in me coming here. No, it's not well. My world is falling apart around me. It's not well. But here was a woman that believed that God could make it well. She was confident in God. She said, it's well. That's so amazing to me. Her only child is dead. And there's only, look, there's only one answer for her response. And that's faith. Faith. Her confidence in God that God is going to meet her need. All is well. It's really easy for us to quote Romans 8.28, right? Especially whenever we're trying to encourage someone else going through a difficult time and we say, 
Well, remember the Bible says all things work together for good, you know, to those that love God who are the called according to His purpose. You, we need to remember that God has a reason in all of the stuff that happens to us, and God's going to bring some good out of that. But it's not so easy whenever, whenever we are the one that is smitten with some painful problem in our life. To be able to say, look, I don't understand what God is doing. God has taken away from me what I love more than anything on this earth. God has deprived me of the pleasure of the life of my son and I just can't get beyond that. And here is a woman. I'm certain that she didn't have all of the answers. But she knew that God was in control. And she could say, it's well. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. It might not turn out the way you want it to turn out. But look, if, if we keep the right attitude, all is well. All is well. Things might happen you don't understand, but all is well. Things might happen that will bring you great pain, but all is well. It's okay. Because God is there and God has promised to use whatever we experience. Now, verse 27. The seventh factor in this woman's life of greatness is the fact that she is committed to getting the job done. Let's start in verse number 27. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by, by the feet. And Jehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone, for her son is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. And then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And then he said to Jehazi, Gird up thy loins and take me. Take my staff in thine hand and, and go thy way. And if thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. And Jehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore, he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awake. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. And he went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord and he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. And he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Jehazi and said, Call the Shumanites. So he called for her. And when she was come in unto him, she said, He said, Take up thy son. And then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. 
committed to getting the job done. Notice here that Elisha first suggested that Jehazi, his servant, would go. That's quite a compliment for Jehazi. I'm here, you got a dead kid and you're going to send your servant. And he said, if if you see anybody along the way, don't stop and chat with them. If they try to engage you in conversation, just ignore them, go on. This is an urgent situation, you need to get there. But notice here in verse 30, she insisted that Elisha go. Now, I'm not leaving you. She wasn't going to settle for second best. You know, a lot of times in life, that's what we do. We settle for second best, and consequently, we cheat ourselves and we cheat our children. You ever think about how much the future of your children depends upon you? How much the future of your children depends upon you? And I'll tell you, we can make, we can make a a great contribution in their life if we commit ourselves to the cause of raising them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And along that way, there are going to be many things that's going to crop up and try to, to discourage us and try to, uh, to stop us. And we have to have the same spirit of determination that she did. I'm going to see this through. I'm going to do everything within my power to get the man of God there. What a wonderful, what a wonderful uh, privilege it is to, to have children in the first place. But along with that wonderful privilege, there's a great responsibility. And there's a gracious God to help us get the job done. And winning His approval ought to be the number one priority in our life. There was... What did he say? There was a great woman. You see, we look at these things and we know what God thought about this woman. And I've tried to show you why she was the great woman she was. These contributing factors that made her what she is. But the real question tonight is, what does God think about you? What does God think about me? You know, it's fine for us to look back and say, boy, she was a great woman. We could even build a shrine to her, erect statues in her memory and stuff like that, thinking about what a great woman she was. And, you know, that's all well and good, but that doesn't solve our problem. We need to take into consideration that God is looking looking to us. Well, the disciples, you will remember, had that debate about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I don't know how that subject ever come up in the first place. But here they are. Imagine the disciples of the Lord bickering among themselves about who's going to be great. Well, I kind of do because one of the mothers got involved in that conversation. And naturally, she was touting the excellence of her, of her sons. And, but anyway, the argument breaks out and Jesus breaks it down and makes it very clear that the greatest in the kingdom of God is he that serves. And here is a mother who is the personification of what service is all about, willing to suffer discomfort, willing to respect authority, determined to to make sure that the job gets done. Now, 
Here's the wonderful thing, and I'm through. Because greatness is simply discovering the will of God and doing it. That's all there is to it. You don't have, you don't have to get a degree from a college. You don't have to be, you know, so many feet tall. You don't have to have so much money in the bank. All you have to do is discover the will of God and do it, and that makes you great. And that tells me that greatness is within the reach of every child of God. Now certainly it's not, you know, the or shouldn't be the desire of our heart to set out, you know, I want to become great. I, I want to be great. I want people to remember me. I want them to recognize my name whenever they hear it. I, I want to be well remembered and respected. I, I want people to think about me as great. Well, you've already missed the mark. Greatness is not something that is bestowed upon you. It's something that you earn as a result of, of serving others. And some of the greatest people that have ever lived our people, you and I, have never even, we've never even heard their name. We don't know anything about them. Some little gray-haired grandmother may be out here in a nursing home that divert, devoted her life to her children and her grandchildren. And maybe some Sunday school teacher that devoted their life to the teaching of God's Word. You see, greatness is just discovering what God wants and doing it. Being obedient. And when we do that, we can rest assured that in that final day when we stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ for our rewards, we'll hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, you know, in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Wow, the best is yet to come. Amen? Let's all stand together. Father, how we thank you tonight, Lord, for the example of those that of those that are truly great in your sight. How we thank you, Lord, for the example of this woman that we've talked about tonight. The depth of her concern for her child, but not only for the child, her concern for your kingdom, for your work. And as she ministered to the needs of Elisha, that later on, he met her needs. Lord, help us to understand that we reap what we sow and more. And here's a woman that sowed good and a woman that reaped an extreme bountiful harvest. The life of her son, simply because she cared and devoted herself to those things that are pleasing in your sight. Help us to have that attitude tonight. To be like that woman and to put the needs of the world around us ahead of our own comfort and our own desires. To be considerate of those that that are in need and to have the confidence to believe that you're not only able, but willing to meet those needs that seem to be impossible. Encourage somebody's heart here this evening, and I pray you'll 
challenge each and every one of us to be better servants. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Page number 360.